1: Broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.org.
2: An alcoholic drink made from yeast fermented malt flavored with hops. That's right, you've tuned in to the Farm Report on the Heritage Radio Network. It's one o'clock, and we are coming to you live from the back of Roberta's in beautiful Bushwick, Brooklyn. And we are in studio today with Mary Izzet. Mary, welcome
3: to the show. Thanks, Erin.
2: So, Mary is president of the New York City Home Brewers Guild, in addition to uh, writing a column for Al Street News that covers beer issues for New York City and the Long Island area. She also has an amazing uh, blog that covers all things craft beer and beer-related. Uh, you can find it at mylifeoncraft.com. And We have Mary in the studio today to kick off a series we're going to be doing called Growing Beer. We're going to spend the next couple episodes of the Farm Report exploring beer as an agricultural product. And I thought probably the best way for us to start tucking into this would be to sit down with someone who can really take us through the beer making process. And that's where Mary came in. So, Mary, as I said in the beginning, uh, if you look up the Webster Dictionary of beer, it's called, you know, it's defined as an alcoholic drink made from yeast fermented malt flavored with hops. So the basic ingredients of beer, so far as I can tell, are water, barley, hops, and then yeast. Is that right? Yes. So I, it doesn't necessarily does have to be barley, but some type of grain. grain. Mm hmm. So I thought what we would do is is start by kind of taking each of those ingredients and breaking down a little bit uh, about where they're coming from and and what gets done to them prior to the beer making process. So maybe with the easiest, looking at water, I mean, are there any, is there specific guidelines around water usage with regards to
3: beer? Um, Yes and no. Um, Different, where do I start with water? Water is interesting because it makes up the majority of beer and it's obviously very important, but I think it's... It can be altered more than, than some of the other factors. Um, I mean, there are certain styles that have, that have come about because of the particular type of water in the area. For instance, um, dry Irish stouts um, evolved because of the water um, in that area. Same with, um, uh, like, the pilsners, right? They're very clear. They come, they're brewed in an area that has very soft water, no hard minerals, no salts. Um, so you can get a very light, crisp you know, Pilsner or a lager. Um, Here in Brooklyn, we mostly, actually our water profile is very close to the Pilsen area. um, And we're very lucky as home brewers and also brewers in the the New York City area um, in that they can pretty much start, they're starting with pretty clean water. And if they want to um, add anything, any salt or anything, um, they can. So, I mean, I'd say, you know, certain breweries might need to doctor their water, but it's not, I mean, our water is pretty clean, these days in New York, in New York City, yeah. we are lucky we have
2: that lovely Catskill Delaware Croton Absolutely. you know <laughs> yeah. reservoir system that we depend on and I know that's something interesting that has come up a bit in the beer world over the last year or so is this issue of fracking mm-hmm. and 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 breweries a lot of breweries I know in particular Oma Gang, where we were hanging out a couple of weeks ago has taken a stance as a brewery that they are anti-fracking because as a business water is one of their most vital resources and so I think that's uh, interesting and something we'll definitely touch on later in the series. But mm-hmm. moving on to barley and hop. So can we talk a little bit between the two, you know, which is the bigger ingredient for beer?
3: I would say it depend on the, depends on the style that you're brewing. Um, they're both uh, vital to to making beer. Um, I mean, do you want to talk a little bit about the brewing process or how? So basically, I mean, most, most beer is made with barley. Um, you can also use wheat, rye. Um, some brewers are using small amounts of spelt. There's a lot of grains that are used in brewing, but those are the most common I would say. Um, So barley has to go through a process called malting and basically what is done, uh, traditionally there was floor malting, so barley was um, laid out on the floor, it was wet and then allowed to germinate slightly and that's developing the starches inside each kernel. Um, At the point where it's ready to be malted, um, which would depend on what the the maltster or the brewery that's that's having the, the um, that's doing the malting, once um, they would stop it at a certain time, um, drain the water, let it dry, and then kiln it. And then that's kind of how you determine what type of malt you end up with. So the temperature, the amount of air, um, how long it's kilned, it's basically baked in an oven. So just like, you know, you would bake, um, you might bake certain desserts more than others, um, and that would determine their texture and their, you know, their... Um, quality of taste. Uh, same thing with malt. So you can have everything from like a pale malt, which is kilned for a very short amount of time um, at a lower temperature, perhaps to uh, a, a black patent, which is basically a little piece of crisp and is, you know, very black and kind of charred. OK, so it reminds me a little bit of um,
2: coffee, like maybe coffee, like you yeah, have a light, exactly. co- yes, light roasted yes. coffee, a dark mm-hmm. roasted coffee. So, and that's the, a great analogy. Yes. The barley. I mean, is it just like if I go to the store and I buy a bag of barley for like barley soup, does it look like, is it that same grain or is it?
3: Yeah, I think, wow. I've never thought of that about, about that before. I think you can, I mean, I, hmm, I don't know. That would be, I don't know if you could malt your own barley after that, or if it's how the regular barley that we would use in cooking would, Is prepared. Yeah, I Um, I know you can roast. I mean, as a home brewer, we can roast our own barley if we want to add, you know, kind of a special touch. Um, Although nowadays, I mean, that's the amazing thing is both to commercial breweries in, in this country and home brewers, we have an amazing variety of malts available to us, probably more than at any time in the past.
2: And I think that's one of the interesting things about beer making in general is that at each, uh, you know, it's, on the sunset, it seems like a very simple product, you know, a combination of, you know, three, four ingredients, but you can make a multitude of tiny decisions at any step in any of those process that will have a completely different impact uh, on the outcome. And so you mentioned kilning. Kilning is a fancy word for cooking in yeah. the oven, yeah, right? Yeah, basically. Mm-hmm. and. I know one of the things we think about in in agriculture a lot is not just kind of producing the actual grain for a product like this, but also what are the steps in between. So it sounds like for barley or whatever grain you were going to be using for beer making that you would, one, need a farmer to grow it and Mm -hmm. harvest it, but then there's this other step that has to happen. Yeah,
3: so there's usually actually a middle party called a maltster. Um, There are some breweries that are large enough or, you know, usually european brewers that that might have their own maltster um within the brewery that's that's because probably used to be more common than it is now but now there's individual maltsters, um and that is actually an interesting thing where where farming comes about is that traditionally or recently um there have only been you know large maltsters. so a lot of um breweries in this country or home brewers would get their their their, their barley might have been malted in canada or europe and um And now smaller maltsters are coming back to this country. So I know there's at least one or two on the West Coast, and then we're very lucky to have uh, Valley Malt now, which is in Hadley, Massachusetts. Um, It's run by a couple, and they're a, a very small maltster. I think they just, maybe they're a little over a year old, maybe a year and a half old. And that's, I mean, this is the first time we've been able to get locally malted product, as a home brewer, at least. And I think there's some craft breweries in the, in the region that are also using their malt. And it's really exciting to be able to buy, you know, mal- malted barley that's not only been grown in the region, but also malted in the region. So,
2: and, um, I'm, I'm hoping to actually have those books on a later <laughs> they're show. Aw-
3: they're wonderful. Um, so, <laughs>
2: so as a home brewer, I mean, one of the other things I want to touch on while we have you here is kind of this difference, you know, there seems to be uh, beer making at the home brewer level, beer making at, at a craft level and then kind of larger, um, macro breweries, b- macro breweries. Mm-hmm. Um, so, f- as a home brewer, when you're looking to purchase barley, where I mean, do you go? I mean, now that there's this maltery, you can go directly to there. But before mm-hmm. then, do you just get on the internet and
3: kind of? Yeah, I mean, we're lucky to have homebrew stores in in the city now. Um, there's f- at least four. Four main places that you can purchase home brewing ingredients in New York City, three in Brooklyn and one in Manhattan. Um, But yeah, before that, pretty much people ordered from the Internet or had to go to Jersey or Connecticut or something. Um, We're very lucky that we can get local ingredients now. Um, And then I also belong to Valley Malt kind of has their version of a CSA um, where I join for a year. I get two 50 pound sacks directly from them and then some smaller packs in between so that's kind of nice and some of the local home stores are carrying the local malt as well as as malt from canada and europe so.
2: and when you actually get the malt like if i'm holding a handful of malt in my hand what does it look like
3: um similar to what you would buy
2: in the grocery store okay so it looks like the actual grain mm-hmm. yeah okay so there's the 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 grain that you're using um, to form kind of the base of the beer. And then mm-hmm. hops are more of a flavoring agent? Well, they or- do hops
3: do, let's see, three three or four major things. One, um, they add balance to the beer, so they provide bittering compounds um, that balance out the malty sweetness of the beer. Um, two, they're a preservative, actually. And then three, they also provide a lot of aroma and flavor. So I'd say those are the three three main reasons that we use hops in brewing.
2: And where do you, I mean, What's the, what's the story with hops? Can you just pick a hop off the... hop vine um
3: yes (laughs) you can (laughs) so it's interesting so a couple things kind of to look at how we use hops as homebrewers or brewers um so when you're one of the most important things is that pretty much every beer regardless if it has a hop flavor or aroma character still has to have that you still want that bittering quality to some degree um or that balancing quality um and the way you do that is through these bittering compounds and each when you buy a hop commercially whatever form that you buy it in it has what's called an, an AA percentage um and that helps you calculate how much bitterness you get out of the hop. So you can grow hops in your backyard or on your family farm or whatever here, but unless you have an ass, you know, unless you send them into a lab and have them tested, you're not going to know what bittering properties that has. So a lot of, I know there's, um, I have some friends that have been growing hops on Staten Island and also in their backyards in Brooklyn, and they generally tip, they generally use those hops as either flavoring and, or aroma additions, and they might use a commercial hop as a bittering hop. Okay. Um, now as we see more and more smaller hop, hop farm, smaller Hop farmers in the region. I know that there is a a regional um, association, and there I've I've met some people that are starting hop farms up. um, And it takes a few years to establish, um, and for them in order to produce hops. Um, You know, those will then send their. Send the hops in and have them assayed. So
2: yeah, no, it was funny. I was just out at the uh, Rockaway Beach last week mm-hmm. and ran into some folks who like, apparently the Rockaway area is kind of perfect climate for hop production, and the Rockaway Brewery is looking at oh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. producing some of their own hops to kind of create a more like Rockaway localized right beer. Yep. um Now hops, uh, there's a big freshness component to them. I mean. As far as like between when they're picked and when you use them, most hops for beer use are, are often pelletized, is mm-hmm. that correct?
3: Yeah. And what is that like what does
2: that mean? So basically mean, hops
3: and and I, I've never actually seen a hop processing plant or an area. Um, but but I have rec- I recently attended a lecture that talked about how important it is. For the processing of hops, and it's actually a pretty precise process. Um, but basically, the hops are picked, and then they're dried, um, and then they could be processed further. So you can buy whole hops, which are dried. Um, you can also buy leaf hops, which have kind of been chopped up, and then pellets. So basically, they've been um, dried, and then crumbled up and repackaged into pellets. They kind of look like rabbit rabbit food. Okay. Uh, rabbit Pelletized rabbit food.
2: And is there like a quality distinction? Be- I mean, is it like tea, where you get like
3: the whole leaf tea, and it's like
2: more... Uh, elegant or fancy, than sure. <laughs> <laughs> then, <laughs> then, like the kind of ground Lipton bag. Yeah, of tea.
3: I think it depends. Uh, personally, I don't think so, but I think it. I'm a I'm a pellet fan for my homebrew, um, but I think it depends who you talk to. There's other forms of hops that maybe macro breweries like. You can buy hop oils, you can buy a hop extract, that kind of thing. But that typically that's not used by craft or homebrewers. Um, I mean, I think people like to use different forms of hops for different things. I, I have a lot of friends at dry hop maybe with whole hops or leaf hops. Um, I find pellets just more. Uh, I don't make very many hoppy beers personally, but I find hops hot pellets a lot easier to use there's there's in the actual brewing process there's um there's pros and cons to to all of them hot pellets you have to use less that they're you know since they're more compact and more concentrated um but they also produce kind of a sludge um so it, you know it just depends everyone has their preferences i think
2: Harkening so. back to what we said earlier about each step being fraught with yes. a, mil- a million different outcomes. so A lot um, of choices. And then kind of finally, yeast. I know yeast is a big deal in the beer world and and, and often particular kind of strains of yeast are specific to specific beers or mm-hmm. specific regions. So can you talk a little bit about what are some of kind of the biggest uh groups of yeast or and how we kind of how you would purchase it or how you think about, uh, the characteristics that different yeast would impart to a beer.
3: So I think, uh, when you're choosing a yeast, you're, you're basically going by the style of your beer. Um, and certain yeasts are are typical of, of, uh, of certain styles of beer. I mean, you can go outside the box. Um, it depends, you know, again, when you're building any, whether you're a home brewer or a craft brewer, when you're building a new recipe, you have to look at, you know, what flavors you want, what aromas, what characteristics, um, and definitely, yeast contributes can contribute a lot of those. The two main types of yeast are ale and lager yeast, and um, they're they're related, but they're basically um, fermented at different temperatures. So, lager yeast generally ferment at a cooler temperature. Ales ferment at a higher temperature. Um, lagers, because they're they're uh, fermenting at lower temperatures, they're not as expressive in flavor compounds like phenols or esters. So, kind of fruity flavors or spicy flavors. So, they generally give would give you a clean uh, cleaner flavor profile then and not contribute as much flavor as say ale yeast and there's a whole spectrum you know between there's also hybrid yeasts that have evolved um and then there's wild yeast and bacteria um which can also be used
2: and so that's like something if you were going to the home brewer store you could make a selection do you get what like a
3: little i mean does it look like
2: baking yeast or Um, well it's
3: usually uh yes it can there's so typically there's Dry yeast and and wet yeast. Um, a lot of home brewers and the two main wet yeast companies in this country also provide a lot of yeast to, to commercial brewers there um, and winemakers. Um, so dry dry yeast looks like the little you know just like a packet of baking yeast basically, and then wet yeast is, a, is in a solution. They either come in tubes or these what's called a smack pack <laughs> 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 that has a little pack of of yeast nutrient. Nice. So
2: so you mentioned a couple of uh, fancy words a minute ago, <laughs> um, and I just want to talk about you know af- often when you are professionally professionally preparing a food product. Um, You have a a language built around it that is different than kind of the man on the street would describe things. So maybe can you tell us like the technical way for for talking about the bitter floral or other components of a beer and then what that might. How that translates into normal speak?
3: Yeah, um, I mean, I think a lot of the, the terms that we use in talking about flit, you know, when you're designing your beer, um, what flavors and aromas that you want, and then also when you're drinking beer and tasting beer are similar. Like, you know, bit- bittering is definitely a word that that's used. Um, there are certain compounds, so esters and phenols are probably the the, the top two words that we talk about, and um, and those are typically compounds that are produced by typically by yeast. They can also be a, be produced by other other ways in the beer. But generally when you're talking esters, is kind of a, a catch-all, it's represented by a fruity flavor. And that can vary from like a fresh pear flavor, apricot, you could have some darker fruit flavors. Um, phenols are um, typically a spi- expressed as a spice. So it could be like a clove flavor and a or, um or some other spice. Um, but those are usually both produced. So you, the where, where you'll see those a lot, like a typical, like a Hefeweizen has a lot, will typically have more phenols in it. And then also esters. Um, ales generally produce more esters, so more fruity flavors. Like next time, you know, if you're drinking a pale ale, you, you might not say, oh, this tastes like, you know, has a fruity quality. But, but when you, if you drink it side by side with a, a lager, you will notice that there's more of a. Okay. Generally a, more of a fruit flavor.
2: Interesting. So I think we are gonna take a short break and when we come back, we will start walking our way through the actual brewing process. <laughs> so stay tuned.
0: Went to the preacher, said I'm a
1: Yeah, I'm going. I'm down So I went to my sister done you know All of us at Kane Vineyard and Winery Are proud to support Heritage Radio Network And the growing movement to change the way we eat And think about our planet For more information, go to Kane5.com I know
2: All right, we are back. You're tuned into the Farm Report on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Erin Fairbanks, and we are in studio with Mary Isaac, um, president of the New York City Home Brewers Guild, and we are tucking into the first in our series of growing beer. So, Mary, we talked a lot about the basic ingredients uh, and some of the processing techniques or choices that you make um, when you're about to brew, but now let's tuck into the actual brewing process. So, Can you walk us through it, you know, from a home brewer's perspective, if I'm going to kind of hop into my kitchen and make my first batch of beer, where do I start? And as
3: you go through it, just kind of highlight some of the equipment that's particular to beer making. Okay, Um, I'll take it through a traditional style. I do a a modified um, style that's more suited to an urban kitchen. Um, But basically... And the same way that we that we homebrew is the same way that craft brewers brew as well, that larger brewers brew as well. Um, so you're going to start with, um, you need to mash your grain. Um, and basically what that means is that you're going to put, you're going to heat water. You, and usually you use a... a, a Ratio depending what on your equipment and what you want, Um, but basically you're making kind of an an oatmeal or a porridge, or even you can compare it to a tea, um, where you're mashing at a certain temperature um, or a certain temperature range, and what that does is it activates enzymes um, that will convert the starches in the malted in the this barley that's been malted into sugars. Um, So you basically what you want to get ultimately from the mashing process is a is a high sugar water. So you generally mash for a a certain amount of time. Sixty minutes might be an average, a good average. Um, At that point, you're going to drain off the water, the sugar water. Um, It's also called liquor at this point. Um, And and you're going to do something called sparge. Sparging is somewhat optional, but typically in in the all-grain brewing process, you sparge. That's basically just rinsing your grains. It's just like you might do with the tea. If you have a very special tea um, that you want to use twice, you might reuse the tea bag um, and get you know, basically get more tea out like of it a for a second, second running. Yeah. Got it. So um, basically you're, you've drained that sugar water and now you're getting as much of your sugar that, you know, the remaining sugar that might be in that grain as you want. So you're basically just rinsing it with, with an additional warm water um, at a certain temperature. Then after that's done, you've collected, you have this, that of sugar water um you're and you're going to go into the boil stage so what has so okay so you have
2: you know your big pot with grain mm-hmm. and water and you've cooked it for a certain period of time and then you strain it mm-hmm. and the actual um, porridge barley matter is garbage y- at that point or you know recycling it's, yeah it's spent or grain. yeah, spent grain. yeah.
3: Okay. so you're basically left with you know this drained pile of 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 matter. Also, one one important thing is that you the bar, malted barley, the barley has to be crushed. Your grain has to be crushed. So you would do that before the mash. We didn't talk about that, but um, so, so how would you crush it? Uh, most bre- well, so most commercial breweries have their own crush. You know, their own. Um, mill. I have a home brewing mill at home, but and then if you're a home brewer, mo- the home brewing stores have their own mill, so they'll mill your grain for you. Okay, and is that like, I mean, like grinding coffee, basically? Yeah, okay. Similar to that. All right. Um, and you can set, you know, for finer, depending on what kind of um, grind you want, you would set your mill like that, you know, to the fine or or coarse or whatever um so anyway after the mash and you've strained and then um and then also rinsed your grain you're you end up with a a wort um and basically you're going to boil that and boil does boiling the sugar water does a couple of things um it it helps sanitize it. Um, it can also causes changes, so you could you can have caramelization of that sugar water, um, and then you also importantly get the bittering compounds out of your hops. So you would add your hops. You can do those at various times. Is the wort, the wort, so the wort is just the
2: sugar, the, mm-hmm. another word, the beer word for sugar water. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And is it wort, um,
3: before and after you put hops in it? Like it's wort through this whole, Yeah, kind of through stage? the whole boiling. Okay. Yeah. I'm not sure, I know they call it liquor, I think right when it comes out of the, the mash. And I'm not sure at what stage it's actually, you can call it wort, but wort's a good catch-all term from basically the time that you extract it from your mash to the time that you add it to your, to your, to your pitch the yeast. um, so the wort so, and hops, the bittering compounds in hops um, take a time to work. Or you, you can, depending on how much bittering you want, um, will depend on how much time you boil. Um, so you would basically add, you might add your hops like 16 minutes in or 90 minutes in in order to get the bittering compounds. And towards the end, you might add hops to get flavor and aroma. So you might add flavor hops 15 minutes before your end of your boil, um, aroma, you know, 10 minutes, five minutes, or at the end of the boil. Um, but basically, typically, you would want to boil for at least 45 minutes to 60 minutes. Um, you can boil for up to three, four hours uh, if you're making a specialty beer that you want caramelized um, or other things to happen. You're, you're boiling for a number of other reasons, too, that that will improve the quality of the beer and um, increase head retention and, and ability to produce a head and, and make it Clear. All, all these things are also determined by the boil, but generally, the main thing about the boil you want to sanitize, get your hop bittering,
2: and the head head is like the foam. The foam, on yeah. The beer. Okay, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, at this point, and one of the things that's so striking to me about the beer making process is sound. I mean, it's so identical to you know cooking. If you're yes, really trying exactly. to make a, a very fine, you know, chicken stock you want to control the temperature and the time and you add your aromatics at different points to kind of create different like depths or levels Mm -hmm, of mm -hmm. flavor. And so beer is very similarly, like you're kind of building a flavor and a structure to the actual product. Mm
3: -hmm, Exactly. Um, anyway, at the end of your boil, um, commercial brewers generally whirlpool. And basically you're just spinning your, you have to cool very, you want to cool pretty quickly, chill this beer pretty quickly. Um, you might want to do a whirlpool which would basically amass some of the hot matter and everything in the in the bottom and kind of some of the proteins and stuff. Um and then you're just going to rack off to some type whatever you're fermenting in, whether it be a conical fermentation container um in a prof- in a home, you know, professional brewery or or some kind of carboy, a water like a 5 gallon water container um for a home brewer. Um after it's cooled down, you know, then you would rack to this container and then pitch your yeast. Okay, so
2: Racking is basically putting it into another container. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And that's just
3: what we use for... Whenever you move the beer from one container to another, that's just the term that we all use, okay. is racking, at least on a home brewer level. So
2: you have in your new container now
3: this cooked-off liquid that's mm-hmm. cooled to, mm-hmm. like, room temperature, or... It depends on what the beer that you're making. I mean, I usually try to get mine if I'm... Depending on... If I'm making a typical yield, I try to get it between 60 to 70 degrees. Okay. And
2: then it's at this point that the yeast
3: comes mm-hmm. into play. Yeah, so you toss your yeast in, or we call it pitching our yeast, um, and then we would secure it with an airlock, something that keeps out the the air, um, allows the carbon dioxide that's going to be produced by the yeast out, but no air in. Same thing with with the wine. Um, and then you you ferment it, and you generally you want pretty tight temperature control if you can, but you ferment it at a temperature that's predicted by the type of yeast, and then how you want that yeast to be expressed. Um, and then you'll have beer. So
2: I have, you know, I'm in my apartment and I have my container of beer with the yeast and it's sealed, it, but it has to, it has to be some kind of special container. I can't just put it in a glass bottle with a screw top. I mean, is there like a... Well, you want
3: an airlock basically, okay. something that, you know, that will allow the CO2 out, but not no outside air in. in because mm-hmm. you don't want to have like a buildup of CO2. Yeah. Because that's where you yeah. get, you hear like... You
2: know, I've heard stories of like beer bottles. I've been in kitchens where my chef has been
3: experimenting with fermentation, and I've gotten winged by exploding bottles. Um, So, and you don't want contamination from the outside air because outside air does contain a lot of yeast and bacteria.
2: So, the fermentation process—what's the length of time we're talking about? It can
3: vary drastically. It could be anywhere from, I'd say, four days to to years. Wow. Okay. Years for very specialty beers. So that's how, uncommon.
2: So this whole time, you know, you're you're essentially at least initially following a recipe. Mm-hmm. Recipe that tells you what's the water to grain ratio, what's the hop ratio, what time you add the hops, how much yeast, how much time to let it sit. A, as kind of a benchmark. I'm sure if you're a more experienced brewer or home brewer that like an experienced cook, you can kind of build on instinct at some right. point, but so how do you know like when the beer is done? I mean, you just kind of
3: have your best guess based on the factors that you have knowledge of? And- um, no, you, you would typically use something called a hydrometer. And professional brewers, as well as home brewers, use this. It's basically... So actually, before you pitch your yeast, you would take a, a hydrometer reading. And you're basically measuring gravity or the, the concentration of sugar in that water, in that solution. Um, and then after your beer's done, it's going to... So basically, if, if you were able to take... Home or hydrometer meetings every day, you would see that the, the gravity would be dropping as the sugar is converted to carbon dioxide and alcohol by the yeast. So, you know, there's that, that sugar solution is becoming less concentrated. Um, and then once you're done as a home brewer, you would take, I mean, it, it depends. As a beginner home brewer, I would take, you know, after three days of taking hydrometer meetings or, and they were all the same, then I knew my beer would be done. Um, as you get experience and you, you get a little more handle on you know how the length of time but same thing with 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 um commercial brewers that they take gravity as as gravity as well okay so then you get to enjoy the beer yeah awesome (laughs) whether you bottle it or keg it Okay, so So. you have
2: kind of your container that you fermented it in, and then you would rack it again, Mm -hmm. right, into a new container. Right,
3: and so if you're kegging, you might just rack it directly into a keg and force carbonate it with with carbon dioxide. Um, The other option is to bottle it. Now, if you're a home brewer, you pretty much only have one option when you're bottling. A commercial brewery, it's not not true. Um, So a commercial brewer, if they bottle, they might actually um, filter that beer so they filter the remaining yeast and and anything else and then they also might pasteurize now very few craft breweries actually pasteurize but but a lot of them do filter it does make it can the product can last longer and they might actually force carbonate bottles in in their brewery as a home brewer you have to bottle condition and there are breweries that bottle condition as well like brooklyn breweries local one and local two are both bottle conditioned and that gives another aspect to the beer i think it's it gives a liveliness um that's typical of that style um but basically if you're a home brewer or like brooklyn brewery they might um if you want a bottle condition you might add more yeast but generally as a home brewer you have enough yeast still left in solution so you would add some priming sugar to your beer uh or to your yeah to your beer at this point and then bottle it and so then over a period of maybe two weeks that yeast would be reawakened the yeast that's already in the in the beer solution um, would be reawakened by the priming sugar and would convert that sugar to carbon dioxide and you would get this natural carbonation in your bottle that
2: was happening in the bottle so wow so we i i'm I'm a little bummed because we're out of time and i'm excited (laughs) however to kind of continue this exploration of of beer and growing beer over the next couple of weeks we'll have people in to talk about The um, resurgence of hops and and barley production in the Northeast, um, the malting and some of the infrastructure, as well as some interesting uh, legislation that's happening around uh, beer right now. If you were piqued by Mary's talk and want to learn more about the New York City Home Brewers Guild, you guys meet the third Tuesday of every month. I think your next meeting is September 18th. Mm -hmm. Uh, Membership's 25 bucks. What a deal. That's for the whole year. You get a t-shirt, and then you get 5% off at...
3: Brooklyn Homebrew, um, Bitter & Esters, and Brooklyn Kitchen. Awesome. Off homebrewing supplies. Cool. Mm -hmm.
2: Thank you so much, Mary. Um, And thanks to Joe for engineering today's show. Um, Like always, all of our shows are available through our website, www.heritageradionetwork.org. They're also available as a download from iTunes or on Stitcher Smart Radio. Um, come visit us September 9th um, We are having a party in the back garden of Roberta's It's our first annual fundraising party Tickets are one hundred and fifty. We got some great chefs like Mike Anthony of Mercy Tavern Brooks Headley of Del Posto And a bunch of others in addition to cocktails by our very own Dave Arnold So you can find out more on that event And buy tickets at heritageradionetwork.eventbrite.com Tune in next week at 1 o'clock to talk more about beer on another episode of the Farm Report. Thanks for listening.
1: What's hot at the green market? You're about to find out now. It's the Grow NYC Market Update.
2: Welcome to the Grow NYC Market Update. Green Market is a program of Grow NYC. It's the nation's largest and most diverse outdoor urban farmers market. Now, with 54 markets, uh, over 230 family farms and fishermen participating, and over 30,000 acres of farmland protected from development. We are on the line with Jean Hodesh, uh, who's going to give us the update. Jean, what is hot at the market now?
4: Hi, Erin. So what's going on at the market right now? Well, we are in harvest season, so you can find pretty much everything. But the things that are reaching kind of the end of their season, peaches, nectarines, cantaloupe, watermelon, my advice is to go out, buy it, and eat it now while you can because those products aren't going to be around for too much longer. Um, But there are some always exciting new products that that are catching our eyes. So look out for artichokes. Um, this week I ate some really amazing lima beans, and then apples are making their way into the market. So I've seen a whole bunch of different varieties that were just picked, first picking of the season, like galas, ginger golds, opalescents, red delicious, and then some tart apples like gravesteens, summer pippins, and paula reds. And then right next to the apples, you're going to find the first pears, like speckle pears, bartlett, and red Bartlett. Um, And then I think, you know, it's the end of the summer. Things to look out for. Make sure you don't miss some squash blossoms. If you haven't had any yet this season, now's the time to get those. Melissa Clark just did a huge spread on the New York Times on what to do with squash blossoms. I just made some in a squash blossom quesadilla for dinner the other night and picked up some other ingredients from the same stand to make a really amazing salsa to go with it. And then uh, looking ahead just a little bit, you've seen a couple of grapes coming into the market already, but in uh, just about another week, uh, Buzzard Crest is going to be returning to Grand Army Plaza in Brooklyn Borough Hall on Saturdays, and they have an amazing array of grapes from upstate. They also sell grape juice and wine, and you can pick up grapes, make grape jelly, or just eat them right when you buy them at the market. Um, and then the last thing I wanted to tell you about was I was stopping by Cheryl Rogalski's stand in Union Square yesterday, and she had um, a small collection of pods that had dried black beans inside of them. She said, you know, I've been growing black beans on the farm for years, but last year in the hurricane, her entire crop got wiped out. And luckily, there were two chefs that she'd just sold five-pound bags to before the crop got wiped out. And so they gave her back those beans, and she was able to replant them. And so this year, she's got beans at the market again. So those will be – she just had a few on display, but those will be coming into the market shortly.
2: That sounds awesome. Uh, Any upcoming events you want to share with us?
4: Yeah. So coming up in September, every year we help Nofa New York um, promote their Locavore Challenge. So the challenge is to eat within two hundred and fifty miles. Every day for the whole month of September, Um, and if you go to NOFA's website, they have a 30-day challenge, so there's a different challenge every day, so all kinds of different fun things you can do in addition to just preparing local food, like downloading an app that helps you uh, figure out how to eat seasonally, or eating at a restaurant that sources their ingredients from local farms, or even starting to compost. Um, and then coming up in our own market on September 8th, we're having the Green Market Use Ed Sandwich Smackdown in the Union Square Parkhouse. And on September 9th in the East Village at our Tompkins Square Green Market, we're having Green Market Iron Chef. So Veselka and Hearth are going to go head-to-head to, uh, to vie for the, the title of champion. <laughs> so all of our events can be found on our website.
2: Awesome. That sounds great. So... Definitely do not miss those uh, interesting black beans from Shaul Rogowski's stand. Stay tuned for grapes. Get your last squash blossoms. If you want to learn more uh, about the farmers, the market, or volunteer opportunities, as always, you can check out their website, www.grownyc.org, or follow them at Twitter at GAP Green Market or at UNSQ Green Market. And that has been another market report.